Welcome to the supporting cast. This is Eli Goldsmith. Today's guest is Stacy Snyder, who throughout her groundbreaking career in entertainment was head of three, yes, three major movie studios, becoming chair of Universal in 1999, DreamWorks in 2006, and then Fox Studios in 2014, before the Disney acquisition in 2018. In this episode, Stacy shares how growing up outside Philadelphia and attending a Quaker school instilled within her a spirit of egalitarianism, which ironically helped her to navigate a uniquely hierarchical industry. In fact, in describing her approach, Stacy offers a masterclass in how to manage ego and power and the creative process and creative people, so many of them men, where Stacy often the only woman in the room, had to apply subtle and imaginative strategies to gain respect and then influence. Stacy's list of mentors is also prodigious, from Mark Platt to Ron Meyer to Barry Diller to Steven Spielberg. Stacy took something from each of them and applied it to the craft of shepherding great films, the most meaningful to her being Jonathan Demme's Philadelphia and Steven Spielberg's Lincoln. There are very few executives of any gender who have had a more powerful and influential career in Hollywood than Stacy Snyder. What a privilege to hear that story. This is The Supporting Cast. Welcome to the supporting cast. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you, Eli. So first, we are starting kind of the first question because we are amid this pandemic and this unique time for all of us, for the entertainment industry and for all of us personally. My first question is, how are you doing, Stacey? How, how are you and your family sort of coping through the uncertainty and anxiety of this time? Yeah, well, thank, thank you for asking. Thankfully, we're, we're all healthy and doing well. And, you know, in the beginning, I think... As with everyone, it was really, really hard to keep my anxiety at bay. And, um, you know, then I just started to realize that we are adaptive species and we have to be forgiving of, you know, ourselves and do what we can do. So I've been able to pivot and do a lot of work online and appreciate what that affords me because what it really does afford is a more personal connection in a weird way to the people that we're doing business with. How so? Well, I'm in their homes, I mm -hmm. see their kids, the dog barks, the, yeah. the doorbell rings, and there's something sort of equalizing about it where you see we're all juggling the same issues and facing the same anxieties, but we're um, Getting to know each other and know that we're all, and getting to know that we're all in this together. Yeah, and you're kind of in a new role now. I know you've been kind of running movie studios, which we can get to later. But you have started this new company called Sister. That's right. Uh, and so I'm curious, kind of what is what is Sister? What is its mission? And what are some projects that you're currently working on that you're excited about? Right. Well, so I've been at a studio for you know tw 25 plus years. Yeah. Actually, more than that, but we'll say 25 plus. And there has been over the last several years such incredible consolidation amongst the buyers. Those are the studios and the platforms. The studios like Universal, Warner Brothers, and Fox that was bought by Disney. And the platforms are Netflix, Amazon, Apple, and now HBO Max and Peacock. And they are looking for content at such a fevered pitch that for the first time in my career, I saw an advantage in being a seller and not a buyer, hmm. that I, I was able to recognize that the need for curated, sticky TV shows and films that people will talk about was at a premium. And so because of the relationships I've made over these many years, I had friends in London who were already very established producers when it came to 
very fancy English drama. So, so my partners there are Liz Murdoch and Jane Featherstone. Mm-hmm. And Jane has produced Broadchurch, The Hour, London Spy, Chernobyl, just top shelf British drama. And along with the consolidation amongst the buyers, there's also been a move towards more global shows. So instead Mm. of just seeing a show on the BBC, Jane was being asked to make shows for the world. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it felt like if we had boots on the ground in LA, where most of the buyers are, and capability in LA and London for production, we could take advantage of this moment. Um, where the demand for shows and films is at an all-time high. The mandate of the company is to be independent. We're not aligned with any of those platforms or buyers. We're, we are funded entirely independently. Mm-hmm. Um, and we develop our material internally with writers and directors and authors. You know, We'll buy book rights so that we can place finished scripts with the right home. Hmm. Because the flip side of being in a kind of buyer's frenzy is that there's so much volume that you can get lost. Mm -hmm. And our mandate is to make sure that your material is curated internally, that you've got the time and the resources to write your scripts the way you see them, film or TV. And then when it's finished, we can go to the market and say, do you want to make this finished screenplay, not do you want to develop it with us where you might end up being number 232 in line? And even though the company is called Sister, it is not exclusively women or, or female-created right. content. Is that well, right? what's crazy is that we're all female founders. And that, right. was just, that was just coincidental. I think everyone feels that it was part of an agenda. But yeah. it was just coincidental that we all share the same values care about each other, and wanted to make the same types of shows and films. The reason that we are so proud of the the name Sister is that we feel that it represents the values of being a sister, not the gender. So so? we tell tell the talent the truth. You know, we're, we're fully transparent. You know, a sister will tell you, I think you should change that outfit. It doesn't look good on you. Um, Go back, you know, and try again. Yeah. Um, And we will lovingly be honest with the creators that we work with. And I think a sister, you know, has has your back and will help you navigate tough times. And it certainly is a time where there's a lot of change in the industry and uncertainty and dislocation. So having an older sister who can say, I think this is the way we should go and this is why is something we believe is valuable. And I imagine also being at really big movie studios as you were, and as the entertainment industry progressed over time, more of those studios were seldomly producing smaller stories and smaller movies and more of these large right. tentpole uh, superhero That's movies right. and so forth. And so probably now with all of these new platforms and you working at this new company, you get to sort of focus on more of those smaller stories. That's absolutely right. We're, we are really looking to work with writers that have something to say, that, that have something more personal to yeah. say. And we describe it as, you know, curating authored voices. And so with the Marvel movie, which I love, yeah. you know, and I'm, I'm watching WandaVision right now and eating it yeah. up. You know, I, I love that kind of, of show and film, but they're not authored as much as they are constructed from underlying brilliant intellectual property and done with incredible craftsmanship. And then something like Chernobyl came about because Craig Mazin, who had written The Hangover movies, I mean, how my colleague, Jane, had enough courage to back Craig to write a searing, multi-series drama like that is amazing to me. But when I ask her about it, she says he was so passionate about unpacking the corruption and um, malfeasance and horror around that episode. And he found that there were certain lessons that we could all learn from it now that she said she had to back him. So that's an example of something that is really authored and personal and probably wouldn't get made 
certainly not at a studio and probably not without the backing of Sister to block and tackle for, for the creator. Wow. So that's what you're working on now. I'd love to get to kind of your beginnings. You were born in Philadelphia. Is that right? I grew up in the suburbs of Philadelphia, the western suburbs, Lower Marion. Mm -hmm. And I went to a private Quaker school for 12 years. Oh, wow. So sometimes you'll hear schools that are called um, friends schools, like Sidwell Friends, where Chelsea Clinton went, and I think the Obama girls right. went yep. there in Washington. Mm -hmm. And friends is a signifier for the Quakers who were amongst the first settlers on the eastern coast at the beginning of, of our country. It was just a great education. And what were, you know, th those Quaker values, what were some of the values that you felt like were a part of that community and that you still think about today? Well, it's so powerful. Yeah. And it was so powerful through my whole life that literally, I was once at a Harvard-Westlake board meeting yeah. and speaking about egalitarianism and celebrating community as much as excellence. And Jim Pattinson came up to me with a note and said, did you go to a Quaker school? Huh. And I was like, oh my God, how did you know? Yeah. And he said, it, it oozes out of your pores. And so I, I wasn't a practicing Quaker, but when you go to school there, you go to, you go to meeting for worship once a week, which mm -hmm. is quiet meditation for 50 minutes or 60 minutes. And the basis of it is that no one has a higher relationship to God than anyone else. And so there's no preacher, there's no rabbi, there's no pastor. You sit in quiet meditation, and when you're moved, you can speak to the whole congregation, whether you're a first grader or an administrator. Yeah. And so something about that sense that we were all responsible for the well-being of the community and that we all had a role to play in its health really stayed with me my whole life. I mean, there's other more particularities to the religion. Right. But I think that sense of egalitarianism and that you have to help one another out was you know, embedded in me at, at Friends School. And I wonder, I know we're jumping ahead and, and uh, slightly, but you were the chairman of three separate movie studios. You were a very powerful right. person atop a giant hierarchy at three different places. How did the sense of egalitarianism sort of influence you when you were your position was not an egalitarian one, necessarily. Right, right. Well, I think, honestly, weirdly, that the Friends education was one of the most valuable tools that I drew upon because... In leadership. With, in terms of leadership skills. Yeah. It, it is, first of all, I really do believe in delegating. Yeah. And so I once had a boss who said to me, my, one of my first important bosses, shine the light on other people. I know how smart you are. I know how, what an eager, ooh, ooh, hand up, first responder type you are. So beam the light on others. And so that, that specific advice combined, I think, with my friend's education made it such that I really believed in delegation, not just so that information gets passed down through an organization efficiently, because you can't have 7,000 people asking you a question and you can't bottleneck. So just structurally, it logically makes sense to me to delegate, yeah. but also I really do think that people are motivated by accomplishment as much as money. Hmm. And so when you give them tasks and they're responsible for, for completing them, and then they're rewarded by praise and acknowledgement, I, I really do think that, that that creates a culture yeah. where people can thrive. And so, you know, I think that I was... I was well set up for that. And then when it came to making decisions, I also believed not only in delegation, but in advocacy. Mm -hmm. I went to law school also. And so the idea of a Socratic method where you can debate in a healthy, safe way, and then a decision is rendered was comfortable to me. And yeah. I was prepared to take the responsibility for decisions when they um, didn't work out. And I was prepared to share the credit when they did. Yeah. But the decisions came after a healthy, honest debate. And people could say to me, Stacy, I think you're wrong. Mm -hmm. And when I would, I could always tell. I, I think I think it's important to try to be empathetic to the people in a group setting. Yeah. I could tell often when an introvert or someone lowered down the level wanted to say something, but they were intimidated. Mm. And so I would call on them. <laughs> I could see that, you know, 
Josh in the back row or Kate in the corner had something to say. And I would say, take me on. <laughs> you know, tell me you think that I'm going down the wrong path. It's okay. Yeah. And so what was the name of your school, the, the K-12 Quaker? It was called Friend, Friend Central School. It was um, just between the city of Philadelphia and, and Lower Marion. And um, it was on this incredibly be- a beautiful campus like Harvard-Westlake, to be honest. Yeah. An old stone building. It was idyllic. And, you know, I was encouraged to be part of the well-being of the community, to read. I don't know that it was focused on liberal arts, but it certainly gave me a love of history, reading, English, writing, mm-hmm. really forced me to write a lot, which is a hugely important skill yeah. in business and in general. Yeah, I've hired people based on their ability to present their thoughts in writing. And were there teachers in particular that either uh, sort of influenced your, your writing or your love of history yeah. or English or yeah. the humanities? Well, I, I had a great history teacher, Chris Dorans, who I think became a, pr- a principal at one of the friend schools later on. And, you know, we just really were taught, especially like 20th century, you know, European history, like we were in college and we had small seminars so they really felt like college courses. So that gave me a huge love of history. And Mr. Eli was my English teacher, English writing, and he also taught Russian, the language Russian, which I didn't take. But he spoke it fluently, and, and he may have been from Russia, but he just had this hulking way about him, and it was lovable. He was like a big, hulking teddy bear. Mm-hmm. But the class, the, the writing class was so unusual in that we had to write for the whole 50 minutes and we barely spoke every single day. And wow. so sometimes he'd give us a topic. And sometimes I remember one class where he just put a raisin on all of our desks and walked out. And we had to write for 50 minutes every day of the class. Wow. So now I know that when I have to give my notes to a writer or a director, deliver tough news to someone who doesn't want to hear it or be confronted face to face, you know, or write a speech or whatever it is, that I can rely with confidence on my ability to express myself in writing. Hmm. But you've never put a raisin on a, a screenwriter's desk or anything like that? <laughs> I've never done that, and I've never written for a scene for a screenwriter, because what I do know is that I'm a good expository writer, Mm -hmm. but my essay on raisins that had to be creative was probably horrible. That that freezes me up. If it wasn't an analysis, I think with real creative instincts... Or an assessment that way, I think that I'm I'm a good right brain, left brain person, but I'm not someone. If if it would scare me if someone said write a script. So after high school, you went to Penn. Is that right? After high school, I went to Penn, and you know, I I knew that there was an, a big influence at Penn because of Wharton to pick a kind of pre-profession. Yeah. And I resisted it. I think again because of my education at Friends Central. I thought, you know what, when am I going to have these four years to dive into subjects that I care about? Yeah. And so I, I was international relations major, which was history and econ. You had, like, you had to take two econ classes, which I barely got through. Yeah. And English was my minor. I felt like a, a little bit of a late bloomer compared to my friends who were in the business school, but I caught up. Mm-hmm. After college... I wasn't ready to leave school, to be honest. Yeah. And it wasn't so much that I had a necessarily a driving passion to become a lawyer, but I knew that the study of law would interest me. Yeah. Um, and, it, and it did. And I had an idea that I would be Atticus Finch. You know, I would be yeah. doing civil rights law or something meaningful that way. So it, it didn't seem in, like a waste of time for me to go to law school. And I did love the study. The practice of law is it nearly as romantic yeah. for beginning lawyers. Yep. My and wife so is another, a lawyer, so I... <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. And I could see it. Yeah. I could see it when I was a young attorney. I was like a, an intern, yeah. paid intern working at the law firms. And I expected my own work to be grunt work, 
long hours in the library, yeah. no appreciation. That didn't bother me at all. That, that I knew came with the territory. But what made me nervous is that I could look ahead five, six, seven years down the road and see that the associates were living kind of grueling lives yeah. as well. And so I thought, you know what? If I get my foot caught in the door and start making real money mm -hmm. and then commit to a lease and a car payment and everything else, I'll get stuck. And while I'm a poor student, I can hang, I can hack it, and I better find something that I'm passionate about. Not because I think that you're entitled necessarily to find what you love and you're immediately going to be showered with riches. Yeah. I think you find what you love because you'll just work harder and not notice <laughs> whether or not you're showered with riches. And then you'll get good at it because you love it and you'll develop expertise. And once you develop some expertise, then you can negotiate better terms for yourself. And that advice came to me. I went back to a professor at, at Penn because I did have to take some Morton classes for that part of my major that yeah. required it. And he said to me, write down a list after law school of things that you love. And I was like, Professor Dorfman, I don't need to. <laughs> I love to read and I love to write. Who is, but I'm not a writer. Who's going to pay me to do that? And it turned out that I ended up applying to an agency, a literary agency, because I figured if I worked with writers the way I knew I was able to in an expository way, yeah. and I sort of convinced my employers, that somehow my legal background would enable me to be a better representative for creative people, then I could get a job. Hmm. And I, to be honest, I didn't know one thing about the practice of law. Yeah. But I had a, I had a little bit of a spiel, which is that I have an affinity for creative people. Mm-hmm personally. Yeah. And I have some practical skills negotiating and drawing up contracts. Mm. So you know where it got me? It got me into the mailroom. <laughs> At which uh, agency? At an agency that was since bought by William Mars. It was called Triad Artists. Okay. And I should mention, you went to law school at UCLA? That's Is right. Is that right? And so that brought you to Los Angeles as well. That's right. That's right. right. So you're in the mailroom at Triad, I guess. And you, like, like many, like many who have risen to prominent roles in the entertainment industry, you sort of worked your way up within that agency? I worked my way up within the agency, and then I, well, not really. I just got out of the mailroom and okay. became an assistant. Okay. You know, I, I, I was <laughs> an assistant. That's the first step. That was, that was the first step. And then I realized that I wanted to be closer to the creative part of the process, and so I made a very lateral move to become an assistant at a production company. And from there... I was at least underneath the circus tent and in the circle, the ring yeah. that I wanted to be in. The agency ring was one of the rings in the circus, but I felt like I wanted to be closer to the creative process, so I just jumped from one ring to the other. And I was still an assistant. In fact, I was in a union, the, the um, Paramount Office Clerical Association. Hmm. You know, punched a clock, the whole bit. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, my attitude was Monday, Wednesday, and Fridays, and, and I was cranky on Tuesdays and Thursdays, mm -hmm. you know, because I thought, how is it that I went to Penn and law school, and I'm in the union as a secretary? Mm. And on the days that it was good, it was because I just said, you know what? You have access. Just because your, your role is to be a secretary doesn't mean that you can't read all these scripts that are here. It doesn't mean that you can't meet all the other young people that are in the same boat and will one day ascend and become contacts and friends. Mm -hmm. You know, on those days, I was like, well, I'm in the union, but I'm at Paramount. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm working for producers that are making movies, and so I get to learn. That was the, what I needed to, to get through some of my ego problems. Right. And, uh, and keep, keep going. Yeah. My first big job was at TriStar. I was, I was head of production at TriStar. Okay. And, and I was young. I was young when, I, when, when that job came about. How old were you about. at that point? I was 30 years old. Wow. And it was, I don't know. You know, we had a lot of problem movies at that time with big directors. Mm -hmm. 
And I think that my bosses could identify that the eagerness that I had to know everything about those challenging directors' films and their scripts combined Mm -hmm. with a gentle approach And a logical approach with them that, you know, if you're giving notes, for example, to a big director, Steven Spielberg or Warren Beatty, your tone and your arguments have to be rock solid. Hmm. And so I think that my bosses recognized that I could navigate these creative issues with them and persuade not them to do everything that the studio wanted or asked for, but to have a conversation that was constructive and that could encourage compromise. Hmm. Um, I, I think they saw that, and so it was working on some of those more challenging movies. That's fascinating. That got so me the promotion. On one level, you were incredibly prepared, right? You knew the script and the project kind of yeah. front to back, but it was how you approached the conversation with a level of sort of humility and and deference, but also confidence. It was that all those kind of combinations yes. of things that enabled you to probably satisfy people on the on the studio side who needed things from yes. you, but also these creative people who are trying to manage this, this giant movie and have a lot of pressure on them that, that you were That's kind right. of a, a moderating force, I suppose. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And so how long were you president so of production? So I was a TriStar, TriStar for about, I don't know, six or seven years. And at that time, you know, all the studios were putting out a broad portfolio of films and try, you know, let's say, you know, 15 or 16 a year. And TriStar was particularly known for like humanist comedies and dramas. So okay. we did films Yeah, like, what are some of the movies that you worked on yeah, in that era? Yeah, we did um, Sleepless in Seattle and Legends of the Fall and um, Jerry Maguire, As Good As It Gets. Great movies. Yeah, yeah. And so they, it was that kind of very humanist, Movie star genre movies. I think the one that had the most impact, people always ask me what movie kind of had the most impact yeah. on your life because I couldn't pick a favorite. But the one that really changed my life was working with Jonathan Demi on Philadelphia. Ah. I mean, not only because it You're was- You're from Philadelphia. I'm from Philly, <laughs> right. But because of what it was about in terms of tolerance. Yeah. He was an incredible, incredible person. And he had just this life force about him. And, and everyone in his, on his crew and in his circle of, of, of actor compadres were terrific. So um, I always say that Philadelphia made me think about my career. You know, that was, it was a vocation and it became then a mission yeah. after Philadelphia. I, I saw an interview once with Tom Hanks where he's talking about Philadelphia and that a lot of the extras in the movie... Um, in some of the hospital scenes, yeah. right? Had AIDS. And yeah. when he watches the movie, that it's hard for him to watch it sometimes because the people in the background, the people sitting next to him in the hospital room actually had passed away not yeah. long after. Yeah. Yeah. And there the were one or out. two, yeah, one or two people literally on Jonathan's crew that were, were not well and an actor. So it was just, just like a, an incredible life experience. And so from there, is, is it because of the success of that slate of films that you were then considered for? Here's, here's, I, I think this might be an interesting anecdote about TriStar that I just remembered. Sure. When I was first offered the job to be president of production at TriStar, yeah. I declined it Why is originally that? because I didn't think I was ready. Hmm. And my boss literally like was screaming at me, you have to take this job. This is crazy. No one ever turns down this job. Yeah. And I was like... Peter, I'm not ready for it. I've, I've only been a director of whatever it was for a few years. And I said, hire someone between me and the, the next guy, and then I'll take it. And they did. And that was Mark Platt, huh. who's Harvard you know, Westlake entire family. Yes, Harvard Westlake. Five Harvard Westlake Westlake alums. That's right. And Great so, family. Right. So I worked with Mark on Mm. all of those films and I learned everything about how to manage the process of making a movie, Mm. how to manage difficult personalities Mm. from Mark. But, But I do weirdly credit myself with knowing that I needed someone to learn from or that the job they were presenting me with 
I was going to fail and never be invited back to the party. Did you learn from Mark just by his example, or did you go yes. and ask him a ton of questions? And did you? Well, we were always together, but I would just watch him. Yeah. One of his greatest skills is right before the first cut of a movie is over, when you're in the theater, the first time a filmmaker is showing the film to an audience, first of all, they're incredibly exposed emotionally. Like, here's their work. Oh, yeah. It's, it's up on the screen. They're literally there to be judged. <laughs> yeah. And I would see how Mark would, like, take his glasses off, rub his eyes. I could tell that he was starting to collect his thoughts in the last five to ten minutes. So you've got to be watching the film so that you get the ending. And you also have to be remembering everything that you watched for the last two hours. Sometimes you'll take notes. But usually the first time you just watch it and you try to collect it in a way that is cogent and positive enough yeah. that the director will listen, but not so positive that they won't realize that more work has to be done. Unless you have something like Sleepless in Seattle, where the first cut was brilliant and all we did was say, go finish it. Wow. And he was, by the way, another lawyer. Huh. So I think there's something about that background that enabled both of us to take a vast amount of information and condense it. Mm. Not just condense it, but condense it into an argument, mm. a position. Not an yeah. argument to be argumentative, but a, a position. And I would watch him, and he always had the right warmth, the right tone, and he would make a few important points that let the filmmaker know, this guy understood my movie, mm -hmm. he's on my side, and when he makes suggestions about changes, I can trust him. And it might just make the movie better. Right? Yes. And the other thing that Mark told me, I remember there was one movie that went from scoring, I think it was Sleepless in Seattle. Like The first cut was so challenging, and I love Ed Swick and Marshall Herskovitz that someone had to bring me a paper bag because I started hyperventilating because the scores were so not where we needed them to be. Yeah. And we got the film improved, all due to Marshall and Ed and Mark's wisdom. And it was good. And Mark kept saying, well, we got to preview it again. I was like, why? We're, we're out of the woods. We, we saved ourselves from annihilation. And he said, because there's still things that could be better. And you don't stop mm. until you've done everything that you can. And I've seen movies go from they were going to be hits to movies you'll never, ever forget because of that last 5 or 10%. And so with kind of Mark's wisdom and then you taking on this role, this leadership role for several years, having some success, did you feel at that point the confidence to move to these next steps? Did you feel like you... You yeah, sort of understood never, where your yeah. your talents were at that point? I did, but I didn't change the formula. Yeah. You know, I, I always felt like having a kitchen cabinet of great people mm -hmm. around me was better than sycophants. So I always tried to hire beyond my reach and to promote people and to create a culture of advocacy and debate. You know, with, with every win, you gain more confidence. But we also did something that I thought was really important all through those days was, um, it was a terrible phrase, but I would hold postmortems. Mm. So when things didn't go well, we would make sure that the group, the kitchen cabinet, the senior managers of the team would get together and be able to say, you know what, this was a mistake. Yeah. Or we should have done this, not that. And it wasn't to blame anyone. It was to learn. Yeah. So we did postmortems on the good movies. Mm -hmm. Hey, this was a smart decision we made. And we made had postmortems on the movies that didn't work. I'm curious, when would the postmortem take place? Because the, the, the movie weekend premieres. After I, ah. The weekend after it premiered. Because the premiere is the key. It was everything. Uh, and we would, we would know. And then, you know, a couple days in, we'd, we'd, we'd meet. And we would have a checklist of things that we would go through one way or the other. It helps you, well, it just helps to learn from your mistakes. And the other thing that we would say to one another is, just because we have these pro formas doesn't mean that this is a, becomes a locked in stone 
way of doing things. Yeah. Each each film and each problem and each situation needed to be addressed for on its own merits. Yeah. Um, so then, you know, you go on to become head of Universal, then DreamWorks, uh, then Fox. And then Fox. And you mentioned, before we started recording, just the names of all of the different mentors that you worked for and learned from over that time. I don't know if you mind listing those yeah. those people and then what are kind of some of the the lessons you took from working with all those people. Well, you know, I worked my first bosses when I was in the union was Don Simpson and Jer Jerry Bruckheimer who produced Top Gun and Beverly Hills Cop, mm -hmm. then John Peters and Peter Goober who did Batman and Witches of Eastwick and oh gosh, a, a bunch of films at Warner Brothers, Rain Man. And I worked for Barry Diller, Steven Spielberg, Rupert Murdoch, Bob Wright, David Geffen, Jeffrey Katzenberg. Hmm. You know, I, I, I was aware with all of them that usually they had like a, a main skill that I could learn from. Yeah. You know, so things like with, I worked for Ron Meyer. So Ronnie was a, was a great agent. And he, he, he taught me how to always respond as if you're going to lose your client. Always respond when the, when the phone is ringing, like it is a client who's paying you. Yeah. And we were actually buyers at the studio. And a lot of people at a studio acted like, we're spending the money. You should kiss my ring. Yeah. But from Ronnie, I learned if someone's calling you with a great idea, you want to be first and you want to be appreciative. Yeah. And... That appreciation will go a long way when you have a tough situation with talent. And so I learned, you know, how to really make sure that those relationships were well tended by Ronnie. You know, yeah. Barry Diller was super, super tough on me about the financial sides of the movie. He would really go after me about that, but he would say, just imagine that I'm a bank and you're asking to borrow money and I want a return from you. I don't care about who you know or what awards you've won, you know, the company has won. Yeah. I want a return. And so I would fight him. And then finally, I'm like, I'm going to freaking learn how to do this. Mm -hmm. And I would work with finance people that I, I had very, you know, we didn't share the same language, but it was great for me. Yeah. Because later on, when I was working with Steven Spielberg, we had to go raise money and I had to be in front of bankers and evangelicalize why these bankers should invest in DreamWorks. And I had to yeah. help create a business plan. And if it weren't for the experience that I had with Barry yelling at me, <laughs> I mean, really dressing me down. He was my toughest boss. But, but I love him. When DreamWorks needed to raise money in 2008 during the financial crisis, yeah. I know that I was able to bring value to those conversations. Right. Um, you know, and obviously then when you work alongside someone like Steven Spielberg, you learn the art of filmmaking from a master. Yeah. So you just, I, I kept it, it was the first time in my career that I've kept all my correspondence over the years, mm -hmm. but I never kept a journal. And when I was with Steven, I kept a journal. Just because of all of the insights about filmmaking that you were taking in? Yeah, yeah. And also all the film references. The other thing that he gave me that was so wonderful and still is a big part of my life is, it, and this started when I first met him back at TriStar. I met yeah. him when he was making a film there. And I couldn't have that conversation with Stephen without him giving me three films to watch as mm. preparation for the conversation. So he gave to me a love of classic film and when you work with enough directors, you'll see that they borrow a lot from other directors' work. Yeah. And the more familiar I was with films from the you know, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, all the way through, the more respect I would get and the more information I would have in my toolkit. Of the list of people you named in terms of mentors and bosses you had in the entertainment industry, there's sort of two observations that jump out. One, they're some of the most powerful people and successful people in the history of entertainment. The second is that they're all men. Yes. Um, so <laughs> I'm, I'm curious, I guess there's two parts of this. There's one kind of you being 
a young woman navigating through the entertainment industry, kind of working for men and gaining the respect of men in an industry that, as we know, especially now after Me Too, had, a, had, had its issues in that regard. And uh, the second, you were often maybe the only woman or one of the only women in the room. And so I'm curious if you could talk specifically about kind of how gender played a role in your career uh, as you navigated through it. Well, you know, if I'm honest, the way it, it, it played a role in my career is that, um, and I don't recommend this necessarily, it, 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 it was helpful at the time and it was a different time. But yeah. for me, I, I was always like the younger sister. And I always kept those boundaries very specifically around myself. You know, I didn't socialize with the guys that I worked for. Mm -hmm. um, I didn't stay after the meeting to chat or joke around. The Yiddish word would be kibitz. I didn't yeah. kibitz after the meetings. Yeah. And I always presented really professionally and like their little sister and also not judgmentally. And that's mm -hmm. where it's, it was a different time. Like if things did come up around me, I wasn't going to leave in a huff, but I would quietly excuse myself. Yeah. And I just retreated when things weren't comfortable. I knew my own personal boundaries. Sure. And now I think that there's been a reckoning, and I think that there is a place for actually speaking up. My version was more exit stage left yeah. than speak up. Yeah. Um, you know, in terms of being the only woman in the room, I don't know. I, I In the beginning, I, I did what many men and women, younger men and women do in the business when they're coming up, which is find ways to present your ideas forcefully without being um, strident. So, you know, there were yeah. certain go-to things, you know. I'm sure you've already considered this, but perhaps we might, you know, those kinds of qualifiers. Yeah. Again, going back to the importance of writing, sometimes, especially with creative people and bosses, they don't want to be confronted right in the moment. Yeah. You know, if you're dealing with bad news or overwhelming news, you know, sometimes a person just can't take on anymore, especially if it's, if it is, feels like a conflict. Mm -hmm. So I would often agree with anything that was said in a meeting. If someone yeah. said, this is the worst snowstorm LA has had, in 30 years, I would say, oh, my God, I can't believe the way it's coming down. Yeah. But then that night, I would get out my computer and write a, a note. And I would say, dear so-and-so, I've been thinking about our conversation earlier today when we were remarking upon the snowfall in Los Angeles. Yeah. And upon further reflection, it seems to me that it was 70 and sunny. Yeah. So I would, I would wait Sometimes yeah. you just have to wait and not have to be the smarty pants in the room and go at it when people are calmer and can take it on and find the ways that they're able to accept the material. And so by towards the middle and late parts of my career, some of that was exhausting. I think, you know, come yeah. on. Yeah. Can I just say, say what, you believe. On, what yeah. I believe? And sometimes I did, but mostly it just became, I could see that it created a better outcome. Yeah. And so I was willing to spend that time. The other thing I really tried to do was promote other women, literally mm. promote them. I think in the beginning when I started, there was a sense that if you got to be at the table, there was only going to be one. Mm. So don't encourage or promote other women. But I never felt that way. Well, and sometimes it takes women in leadership to sort of to, to create not only kind of avenues for women to ascend through that pipeline, but to create the culture where right. you don't have to quietly leave the room when something that's right. is that's inappropriate. Right. It isn't going to be there to begin with because that's not the culture. That that's right. And I think that what happened by the time I was, you know, in a big job at Universal, Katie and Natalie had been around. I had said to my boss at the time, Ron Meyer, when I was having children, listen, I'm going to be a working mom. And he said, yeah, yeah, I get it. I know. I said, no, no, no. I want to say what that means to me, which mm. is I'm not going to hide them in the closet. I'm not going to pretend that I never have to go to a lollipop run at St. Matthew's. Yeah. And you're going to know 
that I'm going to get my work done afterwards. So I could create that environment, not just for my other women colleagues, but for the guys that worked with me too. So it became not a gender-specific culture. The head of business affairs, Jimmy Harwitz, wanted to see the lollipop run also. So I knew if he was gone at three o'clock that he'd come back or he'd finish his work that night. Interesting. So before we go, Stacy, there are a few kind of standard questions as part of the supporting cast. They relate to LA. We are known, of course, for our movies, for our food and for our climate. So the first question, and this is especially interesting to you, and I don't know if you have one, but the question is, what's your favorite movie? And wow. I don't know if there is one. Obviously, it sounds like Philadelphia was very influential to you in terms of the making but was there a movie in your youth that you thought, gosh, this makes me want to make movies or, or another project that you worked on later in your career? I remember when yeah, you showed one, Link, when yeah, you showed Lincoln. Yeah, I was going to say Lincoln. Yeah. When you showed Lincoln to Harvard Westlake, uh, yeah. I'll add, I was at the screening when you um, showed that and you talked about the um, idealistic way that it, actually the non-idealistic way, the, uh, the way it shows politics working in an unidealistic way, in a very That's practical right. way that helped to move this country forward in this really profound way. And I found the talk you gave very meaningful. And I watched that movie in a, in, I think in a different way because of it. So I don't know if that's. The yeah, one I would choose. say like that Lincoln was sort of like a sacred, another sacred experience. And um, for that reason or, or, or others, it meant an extraordinary amount to everyone who was involved in it, you know, from, the author. Oh, Doris Kearns Goodwin. Doris. I was saying, in my head, I was thinking Diana. Doris to Tony Kushner to Stephen to Daniel Day-Lewis. They're, they're, everyone. Everyone who helped make that movie happen. Kathy Kennedy. They knew they, that there's something special was happening. Sometimes you'll walk on a film set and you'll just think, okay, the players are playing a perfect game. You know, I'm sure you'll, you'll see it in sports where yeah. you know like a pitcher is pitching a perfect game and it becomes hushed and everyone knows what's happening, but you don't want to talk about it because you don't want to jinx it. Yeah. And I think that there was something about Obama's presidency and this idea of what leadership could look like and that government and leadership can work that was meaningful to the moment and meaningful to the filmmakers who were making the movie. And then they brought, they're already extraordinary craftspeople, and they brought their game up even beyond. Mm -hmm. So it was just, it was just a memorable experience. The score was beautiful. Seeing Daniel Day-Lewis do the um, second inaugural. Yeah. And also, what was so wild is that somehow he did enough research to know that Lincoln's voice was a tenor. That's right. And, and that was jarring at first because you think, yes. oh, it, that's, a, that's, a, that's an interesting choice. He's right. using this soft, high voice, and yes. yet it came from historical research. That's right. And yeah. so it was that level of detail that everyone brought to it. Yeah, and he looked just like him. It was, it was really wild. You yeah. Know, he looked just yeah. like him, too. Yeah. Unbelievable. What's your favorite meal in Los Angeles? Now it might be something at home, but maybe during yeah. the heyday of... Of restaurants or, or something at home? What's your, um, what's your favorite meal? I love Matsuhisa sushi. I mm. love sushi. And um, probably Matteo's Italian food, okay. like really, really rich Italian food. You know, I miss being able to, you know, sit at a sushi bar and have yeah. sake with the sushi chef and, and meet the people around. I, I realize right. that for me, eating is less important than the social part of it. I'm sort of bored with it now, yeah. but what I miss are loud, boisterous restaurants. What is your favorite place in Los Angeles? Either a part of town or it could be a specific location. Wow. Um, you know what? This is going to sound hokey, but I, I love the fact that the history of the movie business is here. Yeah. And I am such a history buff that that's what I... I really do yearn for a little bit more in LA. And so feeling that in um, places like the Chateau yeah, or on the lots themselves, that if you squint, you can imagine what it was like in its heyday. You can still mm -hmm. see it. And that's why I love watching classic movies because I'll love to see LA 
and the strip, mm-hmm. you know, back in the 60s or back like in once the upon 40s, a time in once Hollywood, upon a time. Right? The, yeah. Yes, yes, absolutely. And so I, I always tease myself and say I was born in the, in the wrong decade. And so finding places of, of L.A. that feel old always are interesting to me. All right, last question. Yep. I am the father of a two-year-old daughter. You are the parent of two daughters. Yep. And so particularly maybe with daughters, but just in general, the last question I'm, I'm always asking is, what is your best parenting advice? Wow. Um, I think creating boundaries in such a way that makes kids feel safe. I, 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 I always was dubious of parents that were best friends with their kids. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like having certain rules, bedtime and routines, and you know, you have to help clear the table, even if it's just taking one fork. You have to pick up the pee that you threw from your high chair, even if it yeah. takes, even if it takes more time cleaning up, and I could do it much faster. The idea that there's like a responsibility to the greater good. Again, mm-hmm. probably back to beginning. Yeah. Quakerism. <laughs> yeah. And also that dad and I are the parents and you're the kids and there's rules and expectations. And I could follow that all of the developmental stages with my kids. And it was a good North Star. You know, now you're old enough to shake someone's hand. You may just be six, but you can extend your hand and look someone in the eye and say, nice to meet you. Mm. Um, You can sloppily make your bed. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the idea that everyone, and we're not equal, mom and dad, you know, set the yeah. rules. That's the advice I would give. Well, Stacy, thank you so much for the time. Best of luck with yes, sister. And, and yeah. And let the... me know if this is, I'm curious to know if there's feedback or if this is helpful. So, you know, stay in touch. Absolutely. Will okay. do. All right. And thank you for joining okay. the supporting cast. Of course. Thank you. Thank you.